0: This morning, I'm asking you to think a little bit about your life and to ask you to make a little self-assessment. Put a line for you on the sermon notes page, and I've got one up on the screen for you. Consider it a continuum of goodness and badness. Very best person all the way on the left, and the very worst all the way on the right. And on a continuum like this, where would you place yourself? If you had to make a little mark on the line and say, here is John Mark. Maybe as you think about that it would be helpful to to put some other types of people on that line to maybe help you know where to put yourself. Like where on the line would you put a murderer or an adulterer? Where else might you put on that line someone who cheats on their taxes? Where on the line would someone who breaks the speed limit go? And then where would you put yourself? So if you got a pen or a pencil, you can kind of cover up your paper so your neighbor doesn't see. No peeking. Where, put a little mark. Where are you? You're all done. Let's turn now to God's word. If you stand for the reading of First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, and may God grant to our hearts and our minds the same reverence and submission that our physical posture is demonstrating. This is the Word of God. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and to the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's go together in prayer right now. Father, we come again uh, because we're still needy. Uh, We still need, even this week, for you, Holy Spirit, to come and to uh, cast your light on this word, uh, to open up the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might see it, but more importantly, that we might be changed and transformed by it. We expect you to do these things. We know that that pleases you to do it, so we ask for it and we expect it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're continuing in our current series this morning, uh, working our way through Paul's first letter to Timothy uh, in a series that I've titled Church Matters, and we're exploring week by week, does it matter what we do as a church, and does it matter how we go about doing it? And of course it does. And so last week we looked at the fact that truth matters. We talked about the The most loving thing we could ever do for someone is to insist on the truthfulness of the gospel. There is no more loving thing that we could do for someone. And so this week we're going to look a little more closely at that true gospel. And we're going to look at three aspects of the gospel this morning that probably deserve a lot more airtime than they normally get. And so I've got those in in the bulletin for you. I've got them up on the screen. Uh, The gospel matters. Uh, it matters be- specifically because the recipients of the gospel matter, the purpose of the gospel matters, and finally, holding on to the gospel certainly matters. So let's look at this first one. It matters who the recipients of the gospel are. And so the question is, who exactly is the gospel for? Who's it for? And let's not waste any time. Let's not speculate. Let's jump right to the heart of this passage, to verse 15. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Well, what saying? Well, we don't know exactly. Maybe this was a a quote from from a well-known hymn or creed, even an early one uh, of of Paul and, and Timothy's day. It's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And if you were here last week, that is set directly in opposition to all this false teaching that was going on, this different doctrine that was being proclaimed was not trustworthy. It wasn't deserving of full acceptance. If you remember, it was a bunch of random babble. It was, it was incoherent. It was different and other than the gospel. And it only led to speculation. It led to no certainty at all, only to folks saying, well, I don't know. It could be this or it could be that. But what Paul is about to say, he says, oh no, this is trustworthy you need to receive this fully later on we're gonna see you need to hang on to it tightly that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners right there is the core and the essence of the gospel right if you only had you know eight or nine words if you only had five seconds to blurt out the gospel for someone in their last moments Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the core of the gospel. And so we see here there's only one type of recipient for the gospel. Sinners. That's it. That's the only way that you can be a qualified recipient of the gospel is to be a sinner. Now, what Paul does with this is interesting to me. So we need to always keep the context in mind when we're studying God's Word. And so the context here of this letter is Paul's got some folks in this church that he previously ministered at, the church at Ephesus, who were teaching a different doctrine from the gospel. And so he's charged Timothy. He said, Timothy, you've got to stay here and you've got to fix this. We've got to charge these folks to stop teaching this different doctrine. And so he's writing this letter, number one, to encourage Timothy in this, but also for the church to hear through him. So the church is going to hear this message, this letter, through Timothy. And so Paul's strategy in addressing the sin of teaching this different doctrine is a little surprising to me. Let's go back to the start of the passage, verse 12. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So here's Paul's strategy in addressing these teachers of a different doctrine. He's saying, all right, I've, I've got Timothy here. He needs to put a halt to this. And I know all about it from first-hand experience. Because see, if there was ever one who taught or promoted a different doctrine from the gospel, Paul says, hey, it was me. It was me. Addressing these false teachers, he said, I used to be one, but... The second half of verse 13. I used to be one. I was all of these things, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. I was barking up the wrong tree. I thought that what I was doing was a service to God and was a a zealot for His glory, and I was all wrong. And because of my ignorance and unbelief, I received mercy. And so that's not to say, when we read that there, but I I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. That's in no way excusing Paul. That's in no way saying he wasn't guilty, right? Because the very word mercy shows us that he knows he was guilty. If you think back to two weeks ago, we talked about mercy and we talked about grace. We talked about mercy being where you don't get something bad that you deserve, right? Right? Paul knows he's guilty. That's why he calls it mercy. I was wrong. I was wrong in this, but I received mercy. And along with mercy, he received everything else that comes with it in the gospel. Look at verse 14. Here's what the recipients of the gospel actually receive. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So, again, from two weeks ago, if you'll remember grace, it's the good that we don't deserve, but that another has earned for us. And that overflows and brings with it faith, right? Don't miss this. Even the faith that we need to believe is a gift, that comes with grace, that overflows to us, and now we have the ability to believe. See, it has to be a gift because we're sinners, right? We are bent and broken by the fall. We're unable to believe. We're unable to embrace Christ as He's freely offered in the gospel until we've been given, granted faith. But we also need love. We need grace to overflow with faith and with love. Love's got to come to us as a gift so that we'll know that it's safe to approach this God. To know that He's not furious with us. To know that He's not angry with us for having to sacrifice His Son. Think about that for a minute. Why did he give us his son? John 3.16. Why did he give his son? For he so loved the world. He's not angry. He loves you. That's why he did it. And so we need grace to overflow and bring with it faith and to bring with it love. And so let me recap where we are thus far because we're about to go a little bit deeper. Okay? Paul's saying, all right, hey, false teachers, I'm leaving my boy Timothy here to deal with y'all, right? But you should know I used to be one too, so know where you're coming from, but I received mercy, right? It's there for you too, because the gospel, after all, is for sinners. Now look back at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy. Deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, I'm the foremost sinner. I'm the worst. I'm the chief sinner. Not just I was, I am. So, so did we read that right? This is Paul, after all, that we're talking about. So you mean to tell me that Paul has compared himself to every other person out there and has come to the conclusion that he's the worst? No, that's not what I'm telling you at all. Paul did not arrive at this conclusion by comparing himself to every other person out there. He arrived at this conclusion by comparing himself to a holy and righteous God. That's the only point of comparison that we can have in this thing. And for Paul, that was enough for him to come to the realization and the conclusion, Oh yeah, I'm the foremost. When I compare myself to a holy and righteous God, when I compare myself to what He will go on in verse 17 and say, if, if I compare myself to the one who's the king of the ages, who's immortal, who's invisible, who's the only God, then of course I'm the worst. Think back to our, our line, that, that continuum. And where you put your little mark. And where your mark is in relation to all those other types of people. Now imagine if the left hand end of that line just goes on and on forever and ever. Because it does. And that our holy and righteous king of the ages, the only God, immortal and invisible, is at the left end of that line that doesn't really exist because there's not an end. You with me so far? He's way out there. Now come back to our end of the line. Because I'm sure that you were humble and placed yourself somewhere toward the right-hand end of that line. But probably there was still a big enough gap between you and the others, right? And you felt like there was a significant distance between you and the others, right? Whoever they are. But now if you're thinking, well, this left end of the line has no end. And he's way out there, infinitely separated from us by his holiness and his righteousness. Now, all of a sudden, all that distance between us and the others just really got compressed. (laughs) To the point that, for all practical purposes, we could just all share a little mark together, right? And underneath it, it could say, in desperate need of the gospel, Now, here's the other thing that's interesting to me about Paul's self-assessment, that he's the foremost sinner, is that he didn't always view himself this way. Even as a Christian, even as a follower of Christ, he didn't always view himself this way. Over the the course of his following Christ, he makes quite a progression. I guess you would more accurately call it a regression. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 written early in his ministry, Paul refers to himself as the least of the apostles. Okay? Well, that's a a pretty humble statement. Right? Of all the apostles, he's the least. Well, but he is still part of a fairly elite group of folks. Right? That's like if you were going to say, well, I'm on the list of billionaires, but I'm dead last. Okay? You're still on the list of billionaires, right? All right, so... Five to seven-ish years later, in writing to the Ephesians, Paul says, I'm the least of the saints. What a step back. What a much more humble assessment. Of all the Christians out there, they're all better than me. So that's much more humble. But then a few years after that, he's writing to Timothy. And he says, oh, even worse than that, I'm the foremost sinner. So quite a regression here. And so it begs the question, did Paul really get worse and worse the longer he walked with Christ? The more churches he planted, did he, did he get worse and worse? The more missionary journeys he went on? Let me show you this diagram on the next page. It, like anything good I'll show you, is not mine. Um, Probably this originated with a guy named Jack Miller. Uh, World Harvest Mission, which is now Surge, has the copyright on this. Um, And this has been very helpful for me. Um, So you've got these two lines, these two arrows extending out from that point. You've got the top arrow uh, reflecting a growing awareness of God's holiness. And the bottom arrow extending downward from that point is a growing awareness of our flesh and our sinfulness. How bent and broken we are. And so that point there, just to the left of center, if you can see it, says conversion. So that's the point at which those two concepts first met for us that God is holy and we're not. And that's a problem. And so that point of conversion is where we were brought and led by the Spirit to see that Christ offered in the gospel as sacrifice and substitute is the only remedy for that problem. The only remedy for the disparity between God's holiness and our sinfulness. And so that's the starting point of the Christian life. And so time marches on from left to right the further you go in this little diagram. And your awareness continues to grow over time. Both of God's holiness, as you get to know Him more and more, as you experience Him in His Word, you begin to see more and more just how holy He is. But another awareness grows alongside of it the wider and brighter the light of His holiness, the more revealing it is for us to see just how dirty and needy we are. And so the gap between those two gets bigger and bigger. And that's why the cross then gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Because see, we knew back at the point of conversion that what Jesus did for us, well, it's a big deal. But the further along we go, we realize more and more and more just what that was that Christ had to accomplish on our behalf. And that cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger because it's got a wider and wider gap that it has to to cross and to cover. See, it's not that God gets more holy with time. That's not possible. And it's not necessarily the case that we get more sinful with time the longer we walk with the Lord. But what happens is our perception catches up with reality. That's what's going on as that gap increases. Our perception is catching up with reality. And that's what happened for Paul over the course of his life. He didn't actually get worse. But his knowledge of who God really is and how bad he had been the whole time becomes more and more clear. And that's how Paul, nearing the end of his life, could say, and it's not false humility, he could say and believe, I'm the worst. I'm just the worst. And and see, that's why the recipients of the gospel matter. That's why the recipients of the gospel matter and that there is only one type of gospel recipient and that's a sinner. Not as compared to others, but as compared to God. Now, moving on to the second and third points. Don't freak out, they're much shorter. The recipients of the gospel matter, the purpose of the gospel matters. Why are we saved in the first place? Well, from the get-go, let me disabuse you of the notion that it's about you. Because it's not. It's not about me. We are not the reason and the point for our own individual salvations. If we look at verse 16 now, Paul has already said, I'm I'm the worst sinner that Jesus Christ came into the world to save. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect salvation. Patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So it's not about you and me. And if you were to say from this verse, oh, well, it's about the lost, I would say you're getting warmer. Because certainly that's at work here. Certainly there are others around us who will see the work that Christ has done in us. And certainly for those of us who have the history that maybe Paul had where they once saw him persecuting and violent, blaspheming. Then they would see the work of mercy and grace in his life and say, hey, maybe I'm not hopeless after all. If a dirty, rotten scoundrel like me can be saved, you can too and that's an important part of the for this reason is that the lost will benefit from that but it's not the primary reason see we're not saved so that we can be an example right that's got the emphasis on the wrong person we're saved so that Jesus can display His perfection. That's not a small difference. God's glory is ultimate in this thing. Christ's perfection and glory on display is the reason we've been saved. And it should lead us to the praise of His glorious grace. That's how this whole thing was designed. We saw it a little bit last week in in, in verse 11 where where Paul's talking about this wonderful marriage of, of gospel and law and how they work together. And he says it's in accord with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And Paul's about to go on in verse 17, and I think that's the next slide. He's he's consumed by this. He's been thinking about the gospel and about receiving this mercy and grace and faith and love and he ends up in an outburst of praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. That's the point. That's the purpose. That's why we've been saved. The purpose of the gospel certainly matters. Now finally... Holding on to the gospel matters, right? So does it matter what I do with the gospel once I become a recipient of it? And let's go, go to verse 18 because uh, Paul's getting back down to business. It's almost as if he got a little distracted and a little carried away talking about this glorious gospel. And so he's refocusing here in verse 18 back to Timothy, back to the work that he's got to do. He needs to pump him up. He needs to encourage him. And so he says this charge... I entrust to you, Timothy. Remember, you're my child. You're my spiritual offspring in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, right? So, so probably that has to do with, with the church coming around Timothy and affirming his calling and his gifting and saying, yes, you've been God's gifted you for this. God has called you for this, right? That's what we do when we ordain someone is the church surrounds a man and says, we see your gifts. We sense God's calling on your life. Now go do it, right? That by them you may wage the good warfare. Right? So what exactly is the good warfare? Fortunately, verse 19 tells us. Right? The good warfare is holding faith and a good conscience. I want to unpack those for just a moment. Think about these two holding faith and a good conscience. So faith we've, we've addressed already, obviously. Here's, here's this trust. Here's this belief in the gospel, right? That Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Hold on to that. Hold on to it tightly. Cling to it. Keep trusting. Keep resting. Keep believing in that. So the good warfare is holding on to faith, but also a good conscience. And so we talked a little bit last week about, well, what's a good conscience? Well, a good conscience is not a faulty conscience. A good conscience is a conscience that still works, right? It still does its job. It still gives you a pang about sin. It still gives you a little check that you, uh, this isn't right. It's a conscience that's not been seared by sin. It's not become callous to sin, but it still responds. And a good conscience is part of being transformed by the gospel. Right? We didn't have a good conscience before. Before, our conscience always lied to us. But through the work of the gospel, we've got a good conscience now. It works, it convicts us with the Holy Spirit of sin. It's a result of being changed and transformed by the gospel. So here we've got both aspects of the gospel. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, right? So there's this belief aspect. My trust is in the Lord Jesus, that he was my sacrifice, that he was my substitute. And by holding on to that, I get the benefit of gospel transformation. That's how it works. We believe and we're changed, right? We don't believe and we're left the same. The gospel always brings the power of transformation with it. We believe, we hold on to faith, and we hold on to the change that's been brought about by the gospel, which is, among other things, a good conscience. We believe the gospel and the gospel changes us. The gospel slowly begins to redeem and to restore, taking us back to how we were created in God's image in the first place. That's the work of the gospel over time. Redeeming and restoring. And so so this is what the good warfare is. Holding on to belief in the gospel and being transformed by the gospel. And it is essential. And the link between those two cannot be broken. You cannot have one without the other. And they must be held on to because if you don't, second half of verse 19, by rejecting this, by refusing to hold on to faith in a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And you've got the examples there in verse 20. And you've got the result as well. And the result is a little hard to swallow. The result is the language of church discipline. It's the language of excommunication, of being handed over to Satan which ought to give us great pause. It ought to make us shudder. But we cannot miss even the tiny taste here of what the goal of that church discipline is. Paul didn't hand them over to Satan so they could get what's coming to them. No. He handed them over that they might learn. He handed them over that they might not learn specifically to not blaspheme because what could be more blasphemous than the rejection of this glorious, saving, life-transforming gospel that's been laid out for us? That we would receive mercy and grace would overflow with faith and love. What could be more blasphemous than to reject that and pick some other way? And so Paul hands them over that they might learn. And and that by learning they might repent. And that in repenting they might be restored. We've got to hold on to the gospel. Both by believing it and by being transformed by it. And even as I say that, we've got to hold on to the gospel. I've got to talk a little bit out of both sides of my mouth here if I'm going to be faithful to that gospel. Because the exhortation is real. Hold on to the gospel. But the truth is also real that God's the one holding on to you. And this is one of those somewhat mysterious places where divine sovereignty and human responsibility meet and it's as if a cloud covers over exactly where and how they meet and what that looks like and how it works they do meet, they do touch God is absolutely sovereign and at the same time he's ordained that we're responsible and so we have to affirm two seemingly contradictory things All the while believing that at the end of the day they're not. We just can't see how they connect. And so we must hold on and we must never forget that He's holding on to us. And so so perhaps it might be helpful. There, There is no way to completely explain away the mystery of how these two relate, but I find this somewhat helpful. God has ordained the end. He has ordained the end that we will be held on to. We will make it. Jesus isn't going to lose a single one of those who are his that the Father has placed in his hand, right? We're going to make it. But he's also ordained the means as well. And so he's going to hold on to us by our holding on to him. And even our holding on to him is spirit-enabled, right? It's powered by the the beautiful gospel. We'll never do it without his doing it for us, right? But he's ordained the end. We're going to make it. We're going to be held on to the last day. And he's ordained the means that we're going to be held to the last day by our holding on to him. Are we all confused now? I hope we're not confused. I hope we're really encouraged. I hope that gives you great hope. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners so that God would be glorified. And that's the gospel that we've got to hang on to even as he hangs on to us. Let's pray together. Father, would you take this indeed glorious gospel Indeed, you are a blessed God, and you are worthy of praise because of this beautiful gospel that only you could have imagined, that only you could have brought about. Would you take it and would you make it real? Would you sink it deep down in our hearts? Would day by day, Lord, would you show us more of your holiness and indeed more of our sinfulness so that we might see just how big that cross really is? And by your enabling, help us to cling tightly to it forever. Until that day when we see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.